Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Margaret Atwood, the prolific poet and novelist known for brilliant books like The Handmaid's Tale and The Blind Assassin. Her many distinctions include the LA Times Innovators Award, the Franz Kafka International Literary Prize, the Penn Center USA Lifetime Achievement Award, and not one, but two Booker Prizes, most recently for the Testaments. Margaret, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So the poem you've chosen from the archive is A Stranger by Saeed Jones. Tell us, what was it about this particular poem that caught your attention? Well, it's about a dead mother, and of course, I've got one. Um, and I think probably a lot of people have. Um, but also, it's, it's very clear. So you get it. You don't have to dwell a lot on analyzing it. There aren't a lot of puzzles in it except the big puzzle, which is where do people go when they die? And uh, as we say, it spoke to me. Excellent. Let's listen to the poem. Here's Margaret Atwood reading A Stranger by Saeed Jones. A Stranger. I wonder if my dead mother still thinks of me. I know I don't know her new name. I don't know her, not now. I don't know if her is the word burning in a stranger's mind when he sees my dead mother walking down the street in her bright black dress. I wonder if he inhales the cigarette smoke that will eventually kill him and thinks, I wish I knew a woman who is both the light and every shadow the light pierces. I wonder if a passing glance at my dead mother is enough to make a poet out of anyone. I wonder if I'm the song she hums as she waits for the light to change, or if I'm just the traffic signal holding her up. That was A Stranger by Saeed Jones, which was published in the July 20th, 2020 issue of the magazine. I love that you chose this poem. It feels to me exactly right in that way, thinking of, of grief and, as you said, the big puzzle. And this, this part that also strikes me hearing it again is, I wonder if a passing glance at my dead mother is enough to make a poet out of anyone. And in a way, it has this you know, self-referential quality that I think is great, especially then to the title, uh, A Stranger, you know, and, and there's an implication, um, if not an explicit discussion of what's it mean to have this person you loved and who was so important to you now be somewhat a stranger to you, but then there's also the stranger who might be encountering the mother. Uh, how did you take that kind of set of self-referential qualities and, and sort of the poetry of the poetry? Well, it's just, it's a thing poets do. <laughs> And he did it. <laughs> but I, I think those kinds of things are the are part of the fabric, but they're not the main pattern. Mm. So yes, they add to the resonance of the poem, but they don't, uh, they're not in the foreground. What's in the foreground is 
and I think probably a lot of people have had this experience. You see a person walking down the street that you think is a person who is actually dead, and that has happened to me, and it may also have happened to you, but it, it, it happens a lot. You see somebody who reminds you very strongly of that person, and for a minute you think it is that person. So he isn't seeing someone that uh, reminds him of his mother. He's actually seeing his mother in the poem. Mm. And you can take that however you like. Right. Well, I also love how Said says, I don't know her, not now. And there, there's a sense of that uh, sort of double loss, um, the loss that occurs when the person passes away, but also the loss of memory. She's living on a different plane of existence. Mm. She's ha she has a different name. Yes. She tells us right at the beginning that she must have a new name. And he's wondering whether he is part of that life, that other life that she appears to be leading, or whether he isn't. So do the dead remember us? We remember the dead, but do the dead remember us? And that takes us right into the extensive literature of ghosts. <laughs> yeah, I think ghosts is uh, a good way of putting it. Uh, you know, is that something uh, the poem believes in, or do you think it's something the poem is, is playing with? Oh, the poem believes in it. The poet may not, but the poem does. Well, and there's a kind of ghost form in the poem, these kind of rhymes that are coming, no and shadow. But there's also this other kind of, uh, I would call it rhyming, but it's almost like a paradox, bright black, uh, the light and the shadow. And he's trying to get at, I think, the internal workings of the mother who's gone, who is, I think, a paradox in that way that we all are. Um, and I wondered how you, you saw that use of form in the poem and how you saw that kind of tension. Um, I don't think I thought very much about it at all. Uh, so <laughs> that's something poets have to think about, but the, <laughs> the listener yeah. ought to forget about them. So you ought not to have to think, oh, well, look at that resonance. Yeah. Um, so when I was in high school, of course, they, they made us analyze all of this down to the last detail because it was the age of new criticism. Sure. And we talked a lot about form, and we had to make praises of poems and that kind of thing. We almost never talked about the poets. Uh, similarly, we talked about novels, but we didn't talk about the novelists. Right. Um, so when I was about 22, I thought the poet's life doesn't matter. Only mm. the poem matters. But I've changed my mind about that. So uh, what I'm thinking about when I, when I chose this poem and when I read this poem is um, this is a poem about loss, but it's also a poem about memory. And, and one thing that poems do is they, they conjure so they conjure up, they evoke. And what they evoke is, is in the reader, not necessarily the poet. So uh, when you're reading the poem, when you're with the poem, you are that person seeing the dead mother. Well, and I also think that, you know, part of the power thinking of the poet is, is the poet is fairly young. You know, there's a sense, at least for me, uh, that the, the mother still has this um, vitality. The mother died young. Yeah. When he sees my dead mother walking down the street in her bright black dress. Um, and then there's the stranger 
smoking, you know, something that we know uh, uh, and the poem says will eventually kill him. Uh, and then this, this kind of wish to know her, which is, of course, the poet's wish, too, I think. But it be, gets, I don't think projected is the right word, imagined as part of the stranger's wish. And I think there's something about that that you touch on wonderfully, which is uh, we all kind of want to know what the mystery is, the, the unseen, the after. But also we, we're sort of, we're also wondering if other people, including the dead, might wonder about it, too. There's a kind of... Uh, power and wonder that the poem thinks about and, and it comes about in some of the line breaks too. I wonder, break, if I'm the song she hums or if I'm just the traffic signal holding her up. Does she still, does she still love me as her child in this other life? Uh, and so we know also that the mother must have died younger than a lot of people do. Mm. Uh, yeah, so there is, it, it takes us right back to the very, 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 very old uh, literature, history, and folklore of communicating with the dead. So what can they tell us? Do they even care about us? Um, are we still present for them in the same way that they are present for us? Have you ever actually seen a ghost? I haven't actually. I, I wrote a book called Two Repel Ghosts, so I believe in them, but uh, I try to keep them as far away as I can. Have you ever known anybody who has? Yes. And was it a neutral ghost, a malicious ghost, or a benevolent ghost? That's a great question. I think it would be a ghost of history in this case, which really? you decide <laughs> whether that's what, what that is. Um, you know, I think it can be all three. Was it an historical figure or or somebody from an, several hundred years ago or yeah, um, I think it was you know I think it was an encounter that was uh, fraught with history, uh, and you know I think it was fraught with questions of race, which I think are are sort of circling not quite this poem, but there is there is a question of light and dark, black and brightness, uh, blackness uh, in this poem, uh, and I think of the black folk tradition around ghosts, which is very much one that I grew up around. So so good or bad? <laughs> good or bad, uh, I'm not sure I want to see one either way. <laughs> well, a good one, you feel, you know, somebody's looking out for me. Yeah. Um, a bad one, that's not so nice. But uh, a lot of ones, and I'm, by this time I've heard a lot of ghost stories from sure. people who have seen them or know people who have seen them. And we did live in a haunted farmhouse. Um, I never actually saw that person myself or had an experience, but a lot of other people did. Wow. And that was a pretty neutral ghost. The ghost of the mother is apparently, but we don't know, possibly neutral. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, I was thinking about that because another place uh, you asked if I'd ever seen a ghost. Another place which I've written about being ghost-like was the place where Emmett Till was last seen. You know, and and I think really it's just a haunted place. And I don't. Th I think it's haunted by a very different thing. Did you go there? Oh yeah, and it was haunted in in the air. You know, I don't think it was like haunted with actual ghosts who walked around. But I do think there are places that are changed by what happens. Well, of course, anybody knowing what happened is going to have that perception about that place. Yeah, and it feels that way. It was a very, you know, it was snowing. It was Mississippi, but snowing, very strange. Um, and I feel like in this poem, the stranger uh, that Saeed is talking about, of course, 
I think is both uh, the imagined mother now, but also the stranger who might meet her. But there's also, I think, strangeness in general that, that the poet is evoking. And I think poets often do think about the mystery uh, and talk about the uncanny in certain ways that I think can be really powerful. Is that something you're drawn to? Uh, I don't know whether I'm drawn to it, but I'm very interested in it. And we know even with small children that the thing that scares them the most is something that looks human but isn't. Or somebody who looks like the person that they're familiar with, but some major details have been changed. So that, that can be very unsettling. The German word for uncanny is, is unheimlich, not homey. <laughs> not, not home-like makes you feel uncomfortable in a right. very particular way so you went there on purpose yeah right and did you feel uncomfortable i felt transformed i think and i, I feel like you know this the soil has been changed i think in these places and so i i think there's a kind of testimony that I would say is important. Um, and I feel like Said is, is doing that very much in this poem. Said is very good, I think, at, at um, capturing that feeling, but also in this poem, capturing the elusiveness, uh, which I think is, is something that's hard to capture because you're trying to fix a thing, but how do you also describe its slipperiness? And grief can be like that. So can poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So in the um, November 9th, 2020 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, Flatline. Is there anything you'd like to say about the poem? Uh, anything you want readers to know or, or hear before we hear it? Um, not, not particularly, uh, except that I write all my poetry in longhand. How about that? And do you write uh, novels longhand as well? I usually kick them off longhand. Uh, but but ever since they invented the computer, <laughs> <laughs> life has been somewhat easier from the legibility standpoint. Sure. I'll, I'll tell you a secret. Sometimes I write poems, only poems, on my phone, which is a very strange uh, thing that's just happened recently. Do you do it in the app called Notes? I do. Notes is much better because, you know, your phone you almost always have, and sometimes you don't have a piece of paper any way you can get there, I think, is, is the <laughs> All right, let's hear uh, Margaret Atwood reading her poem, Flatline. Okay, this is not a very jolly poem, I'm just warning you. Flatline. Things wear out, also fingers. Gnarling sets in. Your hands crouch in their mittens. Forget chopsticks and buttons. Feet have their own agendas. They scorn your taste in shoes and ignore your trails, your maps. Ears are superfluous. What are they for, those alien pink flaps? Skull fungus. The body, once your accomplice, is now your trap. The sunrise makes you wince, too bright, too flamingo. After a lifetime of tangling, of knotted snares and lacework, of purple headspace tornadoes with their heart race and rubble. You crave the end of mazes and pray for a white shore, an ocean with its horizon. 
not so much bliss, but a flat line you steer for. No more hiss and slosh, no reefs, no deeps, no throat rattle of gravel. It sounds like this. That was Flatline by Margaret Atwood. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I definitely want to give some time after that great ending uh, where you have that colon. Um, it sounds like, is it silence that it sounds like blankness right. or, or is it mystery? Well, both. Uh, I think yeah. silence always has mystery in it because being us, we're waiting for what sound is going to come in to fill that silence. What's going to happen next? That is the way we are. Do you feel like it's befriending silence in the poem or befriending this process or is it complaining or both? Oh, no, I think it's it's acknowledging. Uh-huh. I think it's defiant too, though. There's something about it. Skull fungus, one of my favorite lines. Um, is <laughs> that, that, is, that is sort of playful too. It isn't simply, you know, conceding. Uh, it's saying forget chopsticks and buttons, you know, it's sort of like acknowledging, as you say, but also there's a certain defiance. What do you think? Um, well, I think at your age, you would think that. <laughs> and, and you ought to think that. Um, I don't think it's particularly defiant, except um, insofar as writing a poem about something you may not particularly wish for is, is defiant. Sure. When did the title come? Because of course, a title is very loaded, uh, I think. And you have this, but a flat line you steer for line, which is sort of also different than a flat line, you know, uh, in a hospital or something. Uh, how did you uh, come to that? 
Well, let us take into consideration the fact that I'm now 81, and when I wrote the poem, I was probably 79. And at that age, you know a lot of dead people. So I was just going through my Christmas card list and saying, is that person dead or not dead? And then I would have to look up and see whether they were, in fact, dead. And, um, and then you take those names off, and that's just what happens as you reach that particular, you are in the zone of people dying, uh, of different things from the things that they used to die of when you were younger. So they used to die of car crashes, they used to die of drug overdoses, and when you were very young, they would die of childhood diseases for which vaccines had not yet been invented. But at this age, they're dying of natural causes usually. Yeah, so I wrote uh, the, the poems at the end of this collection called Dearly. We knew that Graham Gibson, who was my partner for almost 50 years, was going to die. We knew he was going to die fairly soon. We didn't know exactly when, but he and I both knew that. So the poems were written as that event approached, and he finally did die on September the 18th of 2019. Uh, so let us say he was pre-mourned, Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes poetry is a way of coming to terms with things, which, as I said, you don't wish to have happen, but you know they're going to. I wanted very much to talk about your new book, Dearly, uh, which was just published in November. It's your first poetry collection in more than a decade. You begin with a discussion of late poems and what that means. How are you uh, balancing what you're talking about, these um, pre-morning poems and these poems about, uh, in some cases, aging, and then also end with blackberries, which I think is a wonderful thing to end with. How, do you, how did you construct the book? How did you think of it as a whole? So unless you're writing a long narrative poem, um, if, if you're writing lyric poems, um, short, uh, which I did more of when I was younger because I had day jobs. <laughs> it's harder to write a novel if you've got day jobs or if you're being a student. And also where I lived, which was what, Canada in the 60s, it was easier to publish poetry. It was kind of hard to publish novels. You had to have a, an American co-publisher because the Canadian publishers felt that there wasn't a big enough audience. But the poets, a subterranean group in those days, would get together and they would uh, put out little magazines on Mimeo machines and they would publish things in their cellars by hand setting them. So this is way before computers. And it was the beginning of the 60s. It was the age of coffee house readings. The abandoned warehouse, the little tables with the checkered tablecloths, the candy bottle with the candle and the stand-up mic. Uh, that's why I was writing, or it appeared that I was writing more poetry then. I had day jobs, and, and it was cheap. Well, I actually uh, have a... Album. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you get that? <laughs> I'll never tell. It's the never poetry tell. and voice of Margaret Atwood. It's wonderful with a wonderful picture of you then. Um, I think it's from 77, it says. Yeah. Uh, 
and hearing those poems was so great. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, how do you think about your early poems versus your recent poems? Well, my very early ones that you have never seen because they have not been published were pretty awful. Um, but, but of course, you have to believe they're wonderful or else you don't keep going. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the early ones uh, from the 60s, I can certainly remember pretty clearly how and, and where and under what conditions I was, I was writing them. And what were you writing about then as opposed to now, you say? Well, I think young people writing about old people are guessing. <laughs> you can do it, but, but you're guessing. Um, and uh, older people have a larger repertoire of stuff they've actually experienced. Um, but younger people have a, a great intensity about their feelings. And they're, they're immersed. I think of, for instance, Extinction Rebellion. And I think of them, you know, chaining themselves to this and that and climbing up monuments and doing things like that, uh, which is remarkable. But if I tried to do those things at my age, I'd probably break my neck. So there's a, there is an, a relationship between what you're physically able to do and what you do do. <laughs> Well, uh, I was also wondering if you could tell us how you balance or maybe even decide or does it decide you between poetry and fiction? I don't, I don't choose. Um, at some point to continue writing a novel that you've started is a choice. So you have to say, is this working or is this not working? Is this one for the trash bin? Uh, do I put it in the drawer of unfinished projects or do I forge ahead? even though I can already see I'm going to have to do a lot of rewriting. So writing a novel is work, one part inspiration, nine parts perspiration, as they say. And poetry, unless the poetic part of you is a lot more connected to your willpower than mine is, poetry cannot be summoned at will. You can't just say, okay, today I'm going to write a poem. You can say, today I'm going to work on a poem. You can make that choice and you can look at your scribbly things or your notes on your phone <laughs> and you can say, is this worth working on or is it not worth working on? Or is this only part of a poem? And if it's a part of a poem, I'll put it with the other parts of poems and maybe the rest will come along later. You can put yourself in the zone. You can allow yourself to have space, but you can't just snap your fingers and say, your poem. <laughs> it doesn't work. And do you typically write a poem in the morning and a novels in the afternoon? Do you divide no. your days like that? <laughs> just whenever, whenever you get uh, what you get. Novelists look as if they're working. I mean, they are working. <laughs> Poets, when they're working, don't look as if they're working. Not at they all. It's a big problem. <laughs> staring out the window, going for a walk, sitting in a cafe. <laughs> Uh, what are you doing? You know, why aren't you, you know, working? <laughs> I am working. No, you're not. Um, so that is, can, that can be misunderstood by other people. So how do I know? You, you know that you don't know. You, you right. don't know. Everything's approximate. And 
and it's all taking a chance. So another way of thinking of it is, okay, the rat is looking for the cheese and the maize. Is it down here? No. Well, what about over here? No, it's not there either. Well, what about up here? This is a bit more like it. Uh, oh, it's here. Who would have known that? So there's a lot of unexpected. There are a lot of um, connections that you were not intending to make. And the good advice is if you're blocked, either go to sleep or, or take a walk. <laughs> but you're not going to do it necessarily by just saying, I need to figure out this answer rationally because it doesn't seem to work like that. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there's a level of admitting that unconscious has to be there sometimes, the subconscious, if you will. Um, it's, it's always there. It's, it's how you send a little filament of yourself into it. Yeah, absolutely. What about during the pandemic? Do you find it possible to write? I, I vacillate wildly between being able to, feeling I need to, taking off the pressure by saying, you know, if I can, it's a bonus. Uh, how do you approach it in this time? Time has altered. I'm sure you've experienced this. So you would think we had more time. We, we kind of don't. <laughs> it's because time on the one hand is quite stretchy. Like how long is this going to take? We thought we'd be out of it by now. So what do I do all day? This is the question everybody is, is asking. And you think, well, I've got all this time. You know, think how much I can get done. Somehow that doesn't happen. Why is that? I used to have a, a button that I got somewhere and, and sent to my agent who thought it was pretty funny. And on the button it said, I wander from room to room. And I think we are doing quite a lot of <laughs> wandering from room to room because we think we have all this time and then suddenly it's gone. You know, a day has passed. And what have you done? And, and this is where the list comes in handy. It's quite motivating to be able to cross things off it. So even if you say, cup of coffee, <laughs> you get to cross it off. It gives you a real sense of accomplishment. It sure does, yeah. <laughs> so cup of coffee, work on poem. <laughs> Thank you so much, Margaret, for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Flatline by Margaret Atwood, as well as Saeed Jones's A Stranger, can be found on newyorker.com. Saeed Jones's latest book is How We Fight for Our Lives. Margaret Atwood's new poetry collection is dearly. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. 
With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. From PRX. 